Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to the historian Orlando Fijus. We spoke to Orlando about reaching a popular audience with his history books, his books The Europeans and The Whisperers, and his timely latest work, The Story of Russia. We recorded this episode before Christmas, so references to this year mean 2022. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Orlando, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on Always Take Notes. We wanted to start off with what's it like being a historian of Russia in 2022, this year that Russia has invaded Ukraine and there's been, you know, such a huge set of geopolitical developments on your patch, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's busy is the answer. I mean, um, especially since I'm launching a book, um, one has to be up to date with the news. So, yeah, I have to spend two or three hours a day just following the news following Twitter feeds, Telegram channels, and all the rest of it. Um, But yes, it's exciting. I mean, if I can speak from a selfish point of view, I mean, um, regardless of all the people suffering so immensely in this war, it's it's a rare opportunity uh, for a historian to be, you know, really involved in in history in a way that is still, you know, to be decided how it's going to go. And... uh, the book that I've I've just you know launched is is couldn't really be more relevant to it all because it set out to explore exactly the sort of historical ideas and mythologies and narratives of the past that Putin has instrumentalized weaponized for this war so it feels it feels urgent i guess it it feels urgent and um I'm glad to be part of the conversation in the West about 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 the war. So, yeah, that's very fulfilling, I guess. But it's not something I would have wanted to happen in the sense that, you know, the war is just, this war is such a terrible thing to be happening and it's so unnecessary and so many people are suffering so badly from it. I hesitate to talk about the way in which I've gained from it as a historian, if you see what I mean. In its tendency to tell stories about itself, is Russia unusual or do other countries have a mythology and that they're drawing on in a similar way. Yeah, no, all countries have their historical mythologies or national memories, if you like. But I think that um, in Russia, they, they play a particularly powerful role, not just because of the power of myths, which um, I, I discuss in the book and probably agree with the explanation that I've given of by Michael Mikhail Chernyavsky, who, who, who says that, you know, there's so many myths and beliefs in myths in Russia, because it's such a it's such an awful place to live. So you need to believe in some sort of salvation. So salvation stories, transcendence, the idea of sacrifice and suffering for a better tomorrow. These are very powerful ideas in Russian history. But I think that it's also, in terms of historical memory, much more ever present and potent in Russia, precisely because uh, Russia doesn't have this free 
collective memory. I mean, if you think of memory as a three-tiered thing, I mean, there's there's personal memory, uh, which is subjective, and then there's official memory, which is the state commemoration of the past, the official story. And then in most free societies, you have this, you know, this large dominant area of collective memory, which is made up of books and films and all the rest of it. And in Russia... That that middle sphere of collective memory has always been suppressed by the by 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 the official version of events. So, so it it plays a special role, and it does mean that in in Russia, uh, accounts of the past, um, myths about the past, stories about the past have 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 always played into the hands of autocrats wanting to use the past, and and this war is no exception to that. Could you tell us, perhaps for uh, listeners who are less familiar with Russian history, some of these central myths and stories you explore in the book? Um, I was interested also particularly in the, the kind of fight over the idea of what the ethnic origin of the Russian people are, and then also the role of Prince Vladimir or Vladimir and his 800 concubines. Yeah, well, that's a foundation myth, which Russia um, sort of shares, but fights over with the Ukrainians, because... Uh, Russia, Belarus, uh, 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 and Ukraine all come from this civilization established with the state in Kiev in in the first millennium, and no one really knows what Kievan Rus really was. It was probably, uh, as far as we can tell from the archaeology, um, which is more or less all we have to go on. It was probably um, you know a multi-ethnic uh, community of traders and farmers and the odd warrior elites but um both russia and ukraine uh, have have claimed it as the, the sort of uh, state of their modern nationhood and that's exactly where i begin the book as you say with the opening of this monument to the grand prince vladimir as the russians will call him in moscow hideous sort of kitsch uh, statue just outside the kremlin um but the Ukrainians have their own statue of Volodymyr, as as they call him, um, which was put up when the Russian Empire uh, ruled over Ukraine um, in 1853. But uh, that statue since 1991 in, in Kiev has become a, a powerful source of Ukrainians' own sort of national identity as something different from Russia. Uh, so that's so one foundation myth where there's a very strong conflict because, you know, Putin said in, in his speech to mark the opening of the Moscow statue that, that Kiev was the foundation of the modern Russian state. And there's only one Russian state, and that's Russian. Um, whereas Poroshenko, who was then the uh, president of Ukraine in 2016 when that monument was opened, he said, no, 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 the the monument is, is the beginnings of Ukraine's nationhood, and it was a choice Ukraine made to join Europe, to be part of Byzantium. So the foundation myth is, is yeah, one set of myths that... that plays its part in Russian history. But I think um, that there are many others. Um, and uh, if I could just focus quickly on two, I mean, one is this idea of uh, the holy Tsar, the sacralized power of the Tsar, sacralized because holy Russia itself is seen in this narrative, this myth, as, as the place where Christ will come. That's where Christ will come. Uh, Russia or Mo- Muscovy um, uh, is is the third Rome in this ideology. It is the last seat of true orthodoxy after the fall of Constantinople. So this is where this. So Russia has a sort of messianic uh, 
um, role which it which its state and church has always assigned to it and and in and as the defender of holy Rus holy Russia the Tsar becomes a sort of sacred figure um, and and that builds into the cults of of Nicholas II or um, uh, Lenin and Stalin um, and indeed one might say even Putin now they they're, they're all seen as sources of sacred power in a way. Um, backed by the church uh, or by the ideology of the Bolsheviks in the case of Lenin and Stalin, so uh, which is a sort of orthodoxy uh, in the communist system uh, to parallel the orthodoxy of Byzantium that underpins the sacred status of the Tsar. Then the other, I guess the other myth that, that really runs through Russian history and which is so important is, is this idea that Russia is, is always attacked Russia is Russia doesn't start wars, it doesn't start aggressive wars, but it's big and so it finds itself hard put to defend all its boundaries and Ukraine in particular is is a sore point because whenever the Ukrainians try to break away from their bigger Russian brothers, you know, in this family of Slavs, as Putin would like to have it, then they fall under the influence of, of Western powers. So, you know, in that now infamous essay from July 2021, in which Putin uh, talked about the, the uh, historical unity of the Russians and Ukrainians, he argued then that, you know, Russia, that Ukraine, it's a myth, a complete myth in his understanding, goes back to this foundation myth, that Ukraine was never had a nationhood of its own. It only had a sort of artificial statehood under the Soviet Union. But, and that uh, its true place was to be part of greater Russia under the tutelage, if you like, of their uh, senior brothers in this family of nations, the 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 Russians, and the, the as soon as they began to break away from Russian influence and domination, I guess um, they fell under the under the sway of Western powers using Ukraine to attack Russia. So Putin goes on about the Poles and the Swedes in the seventeenth century. The, Germans and the Austrians in the 19th century, the Germans again in the First World War, the Allied powers in the Russian Civil War, um, the uh, Nazis in the Second World War, and now again NATO since 2014, all using Ukraine uh, and stirring Ukrainian nationalism, separatism, to weaken and undermine Russia, greater Russia itself. So, you know, that's a very powerful myth, and it, 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 it's based on a number of factors um, like Russian imperial historiography going back to the 19th century. You know, it's it's a story that many people relate to because it's, well, if you think about it, it's Alexander Nevsky, isn't it? We're, we're, we're attacked. We need a strong leader, as in Nevsky, to rally the Russian people and defend our country from being destroyed by, in that case, the Teutonic Knights who wanted to make us all into Catholics. Um, so, you know, that had tremendous resonance, that story. I mean, Alexander Nevsky was voted in, I think, 2016, the most, the greatest Russian who ever lived. And that was probably simply on the basis that millions and millions of people had seen the Eisenstein film, Alexander Nevsky, who played precisely into that myth. That, you know, I mean, and this was a, a film made on the eve of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, that, that these Teutonic Knights 
who were given sort of uniforms and helmets with subtly included sort of swastikas and the rest of it were attacking Russia and that um, that it, they would destroy Russia and its orthodox beliefs and that Nevsky um, rallied the Russian people to push back the enemy. This is a very powerful myth and it's one of the reasons I think why so many Russians go along with Putin's version of this war as a necessary defence of Russia against foreign hostile powers. You mentioned um, Putin as part of this lineage of myth-making through, uh, you know, the idea of the sacred ruler. In what other ways has he created a cult of personality sort of analogous to Stalin or, or Lenin? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I think he has. I think he's consciously tried to make it analogous to Stalin. I mean, Stalin, if you think about the cult of Stalin, I mean, he, he, he was firstly, um, he was always... I mean, the cult really only takes off after the death of his wife, uh, Nadezhda Aluleva, in 1932. And from that point, um, Stalin is built up as this sort of patriarchal figure, the father of the nation, a little bit like the old myth of the Tsar Batyushka, the benevolent Tsar who protects the people. He's a bachelor. He lives on his own. He, he, he doesn't think about anything except caring for the people. And, and so Putin, I think, uh, plays into that. You know, the, he's seen to be a bachelor. He's seen to be always brooding on his own and worried about Russia. Um, this macho stuff, you know, the bare-chested guy. Um, it's all a little bit like, you know, Stalin, who liked to wear military gear the whole time, although he, he had very little military experience. And when, when he did get involved in, in, in wars and the Civil War, he usually made a mess of it. But he liked to project this macho image through by using, uh, by, by wearing military uniforms. So, yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess Putin plays on that. And I think the other thing that Putin does, which connects him to this sort of Stalin cult, is that... He's very much um, the autocrat um, above and beyond any other form of politics. So, um, you know, there's no Politburo to to tame him or advise him. There's no, you know, he really is like a Tsar. I mean, I I guess most historians would end, you know, collective leadership around 1932. And after that point, Stalin does the same. It's like he's the Tsar, he's the the autocrat. He's a monarch ruling a country which he believes needs a monarch, as I think Putin probably believes. And there's no, you know, the, the collective control on him through the Politburo doesn't really exist anymore so there are lots of similarities there absolutely could we roll back now from the new book to your early life and the the beginnings of your interest in both history and in writing we we saw elsewhere that you said you spent a lot of time alone as a child and that you were a precocious reader but you've said in retrospect that you were too young to actually understand some of these books you were reading and it was it was zola who first got you hooked on the past and i was also interested in the influence of your mother the feminist scholar eva fiji's on your development well, of course, my mum played a big role, um, and she was a, a highly thought of, if not very well-selling novelist, who, yeah, was, um, I guess, an inspiration in the sense that the respect, yeah, I guess the respect one had for her, I had for her as a, as a writer, you know, fed then into my respect for her as a reader of my first pathetic scribblings as a teenager um, so there was a sort of um, slightly uh, daunting and even terrifying sort of 
benchmark of success that I probably never passed in my mother's eyes. Um, but uh, that, that was definitely an influence. Literature, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I, I was a precocious reader in the sense of being a rather stupid young boy who, who, who read things before he was really ready to read things. Uh, and I did, when I was a teenager, I absolutely adored Zola, who I think is quite approachable for a, for a teenager. I mean, uh, it's not difficult um, if you're interested in social history, as I, as I was. It's um, it's not difficult to get a lot out of Zola. Uh, um, and probably there probably isn't that much more to get out of Zola that a, te- that a, a bright teenager can't get. But it, that doesn't mean that it could tra- that, that sort of interest in adult literature could translate so easily into, into the Russian classics, which I also read when I was a teenager. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I read War and Peace, I think, when I was about 14 or 15, but I don't think I probably understood uh, more than a small fraction of it. Yeah, I don't know why I took to, to, to sort of literature bit before I probably should have done, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't know why that is. I mean, I think it's probably... I think I, I, um, it appealed to my historical imagination. I mean, I think I probably was already thinking historically when I was a teenager in that sense. Um, that I, and I've always found literature the best way of getting into a, a, a period of the past. So, uh, you know, you, you asked me to think about three questions, and I think that would be... Would be would be one of them to historians, certainly, that, you know, read... I mean, my my advice to anyone wanting to write is just read, 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 read. I mean, the more you read, the better you'll be as a writer. But I, I would certainly say to budding historians that reading the the literature of the society or the period they want to get into is is the best thing they can do. Because, it, yeah, it... Uh, it feeds the imagination. Ultimately, history writing is 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 imaginative. So, was it Tolstoy then that ignited your interest in in Russia and Russian history? I don't know because, um, having read the Russian classics when I was a teenager, I then forgot all about Russia and went to university and uh, was more interested at, at uni in in German history. And uh, I had the idea of doing a PhD. I did an undergraduate dissertation, which was published, actually, in the Ludwig Berner Institute yearbook for 1984. And the title of it was Ludwig Berner and the Formation of a Radical Critique of Judaism. I thought this rather obscure young Hegelian thinker and poet Ludwig Berner um, uh, could have had an influence on the formation of Marx's critique of Judaism uh, in, in an essay he wrote in the early 1840s. Uh, and, and I wrote this dissertation um, and uh, even trotted off to Oxford to visit the great Isaiah Berlin, who was completely sweet and kind to me and um, talked at me as he did uh, to everybody for about three hours and then and then took me to lunch. And um, and but uh, my supervisor at that time, who was the historian Norman Stone, he said to me, Orlando, he was a Glaswegian Norman, so Orlando, if you've got trouble with your girlfriend or you, you've got a hangover, you don't want to go into the library every day and have to read Hegel. Why don't you do something empirical? And then suggested Russian peasants, and that's how I got into the subject. Because that's a much more cheering subject than Hegel? Well, I, I, I do remember... Um, well, you can count peasants. I mean, I, I get Norman's point. I think for a young person to do an empirical subject is much more sensible than, than dealing in ideas, which 
it's really an old man subject or old woman subject, I would think, really. Could you tell us, um, sorry to interrupt, could you tell us about, you know, this stint that you had as a graduate student in Moscow in the 80s? I was reading about this, like, cockroach-infested room, being spied on, endless hassles. You know, that that move from, from being in a British university context to being, you know, immersed in in a foreign country, in a foreign culture as a researcher. Yeah, no, I loved it. I mean, it was uh, a bit hair-raising at times, but yeah, no, I loved it. I mean, it was fascinating and uh, exciting and slightly dangerous. Um, but yes, we were, we, were, we were sent off to Moscow uh, through the British Council, which had an exchange with, with the Russian Academy of Sciences, I think. I think basically we sent them historians and people like me and you know pe- people doing all sorts of stuff that could benefit from a, a year in Moscow and, and they sent spies um, but um, I, 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 during that year um, I, I suppose I got myself uh, it became three years I got myself established really I mean the archives were just beginning to open up in my second year and I had good connections with historians and archivists who sort of helped me a little bit. And I had a, a good circle of intelligentsia friends who also helped me. So it was all very exciting. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it taught me a lot of things about historical research, which I would, again, you know, still always make sure to tell my, I mean, I always make sure to tell PhD students, not that I have anymore, I'm now retired, but I would always tell them, that the most important person in their lives is the archivist. So they have to make a very big effort to get on with the archivist. I mean, to, which means everything from showing that you're working hard and very serious about your subject to being knowledgeable about how the archive works and asking them questions that can open doors. And, and, and yeah, a little, I mean, a little bit of flirtation always helped given that most archivists in well, all archivists in Moscow but were young women who, you know, might have been trained by the party and might have been KGB members. But, I mean, it's pretty boring being an archivist when you sit in a, in a, in a reading room all day. So if some weird, you know, Englishman comes along and, and takes a great interest in it, 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 it you know, it, it, it helps. All of these personal things help. So, so yeah, the tools of the trade, I guess, I learnt... Um, in Moscow, yeah, and um, I think they've stood me in good stead, really. I think that too many historians probably take archival findings and archivists for granted. They they think that they just go in there and get what they need and come out, and it, it's not like that. I mean, archives are organised for archivists, they're not organised for historians. So there's quite a lot of, you know, um, there's quite a lot of things to learn in terms of methodology in terms of um in terms of how you sequence your research it's quite a lot of things to be learned before i would i would let a phd student onto the archives am i right in thinking as well that traded cigarettes was quite important in winning over archivists at that point it was yes it was i mean the we were we were as foreigners we were put into a special room under the guard of the KGB, effectively, um, with the head of a reading room being a KGB person. Um, and we had no contact with the Soviets um, who were in the, in sort of the rest of this corpus of buildings with their own cafeteria, which we weren't allowed to use. But there was, yeah, this one floor in the system, which was that uh, um, in that part of the building, there was only one male toilet. And that's where you went to smoke. And I did smoke, so... I started, yeah, um, offering my 
Marlborough cigarettes and chatting with archivists and historians and managed to find one who be, who, who became a good friend and who provided me with the numbers I needed. Uh, by that, I probably need to explain that we we didn't have access to the catalogues. So, I mean, can you imagine trying to work in an archive or a library without knowing what's in it? Well, that's what we had to do. The only way of getting documents was by citing the footnotes of historians who'd been published in the Soviet Union. That was the Soviet system of control. If some Soviet historian had used this document, then it would be okay to give it to a graduate student from the West uh, in in most cases. So um, getting hold of those numbers was all important. Could you tell us how the the language element worked both then and subsequently in your career? Did you speak and read Russian at, at that point? And how had you learned it? And how has... How has you know, language and translation and all of that been a, a factor and a theme for you throughout your career? Well, obviously very much. I mean, uh, you can't be a... I mean, I would say you can't really be a historian of anything unless you speak two or three languages. Because apart from anything, you need to read different historiographies. You can't just read the English language historiography. But it's obviously also important, I mean, just coming back to the, the practicalities of doing archival research. I mean, I wouldn't let onto archive work um, a British graduate student who didn't already have very good Russian, because without that, they'll be, they won't be taken seriously. So um, I didn't have Russian to begin with. I had French and German were my languages, but I got a grant when I went to Trinity College with Norman Stone, the guy who told me not to do Hegel. I got a, I got a year's uh, scholarship to learn the language, which I did. And um, actually, that was sort of pretty useless in some ways, because... I learned stuff one we had language labs. I don't know if we still have them, but you would go into this laboratory, put on your headphones, and it was a Harcourt brace and something other, some American program to, to learn Russian for social scientists. But actually most of the words in social science in Russian are imported from the West anyway. So you're you, you can learn very quickly, and that give, gave me a full sense of security. So I remember the first time I went to the Soviet Union was Kiev in 1983, and I, and I went to have lunch with a friend of, a, of, a, of someone I, I, I had known who was a, a philosopher, and, and I could speak perfectly good language with him, about Hegel, actually, as it comes to it. Um, but when, he's, when, when, when I was asked if I would like another sausage or if I, if I, you know, if I would like some, some more vegetables, I, mean, I was sort of lost because I didn't have all those standard words you learn for, I don't know, various forms of tree and stuff. You know, when you learn a language in order to read the literature and become a translator, I didn't really have that language. I picked it up later because when I then went back to Moscow in 84 for, for the three years of, of graduate work there, I mean, yeah, I mean, I had the time of my life and I had lots of Russian girlfriends and one one in particular, you know, taught me to learn my Russian. So, and that... And that you know, that, frankly, that's the best way to learn a language is to, is to get yourself a romantic partner who'll speak it to you all day. How has your work, and by extension the work of other British historians who write about Russia, been received within Russia itself? Has that changed over, I'm thinking, particularly the darkening mood in the 21st century? It's hard to say because um, uh, only one of my books has been translated into Russian, which is the Crimean War book. Um, there was a whole saga over the whispers whether that was going to be published or not, and 
uh, all sorts of stories have been told about that, but it didn't get um, published in the end. And A People's Tragedy was meant to be published in into into Russian, but uh, and I got a I got a translation grant from the UK for it. But in those days, in the mid late nineties, Russia was such a sort of wild place that the the publisher ran off with the scholarship, with the translation money, and and was never seen again. So. So it's hard to say, really. I mean, I think um, it's... It, I'm probably a very marginal figure on even the horizons of people who are either professional historians or keen readers of history in in Russia, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure people in my field know about my work. How many of them have read my work in detail would be hard to say because, you know, they've only got one book in Russian to read. But I gather that that book is is, is now highly recommended in, in many universities in Russia um, as the book to read on, on the Crimean War. But um, that's probably because they're on the more liberal end of the polit- political spectrum and open to... Western perspectives on Russian history. I'm sure that there'll be lots of other Russian academics of a more nationalist persuasion, should we say, who, 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 you know, would probably have never heard of me, but um, if they could read the book, um, would probably dismiss it as anti-Russian or something. You've both had an academic career and written books for a, that have reached a wide general readership. How has it been kind of walking the boundary between those those two worlds? From, from other historians we've had on, we've heard, you know, that they, it can be quite difficult and there can be issues of one side attacking the credibility of the other and, and the other side envious of the, the sales and the prominence of those figures. How has having a foot in both of those camps worked for you? It's been difficult. It's difficult. I mean, especially since... You know, I was only uh, 36 when A People's Tragedy was published and that won prizes all around the world and went into endless languages and sold huge numbers of copies. And I was, it was my second book and I was only 36. And, uh, oh, why not? I'm not, I'm retired now, I don't really care. Um, I I remember, for example, um, shortly after the book came out, I, I, I gifted it to Quinton Skinner, who um, was, I don't know why, he was a powerful figure in the history faculty. And I guess I want, if I'm honest about it, wanted to be promoted. I never was promoted in the history faculty at Cambridge, which is why I left. Well, one of the reasons why I left. But the um, uh, Quinton, uh, I went to a, then went to a party at his house and Quinton had a people's tragedy on the coffee table. And, and he said to me in that way that only Quinton says, well, that is terribly well written, he said, which in his language means it's well it's stylistically well written but i can't i can't vouchsafe for any of the scholarship in it and even though my works have been you know always i think scholarly they've always been based on primary research apart from story of russia which is you know based on secondary works just different sort of book um there's always been that slightly snobby academic view of books that manage to reach a wider audience that because they can do that they must be less than rigorous in their scholarship they must be less than serious in their in their content and so I've had a lot of flack from that and have found it yeah I found it difficult at times it made me feel quite insecure about what I was doing 
I mean, I see you've now got a question. Tell us a time when you failed in your writing career and what you learned from it. I mean, okay, hand on heart confession time. I mean, I got myself into deep shit in 2010 when I um, was outed for writing some anonymous book reviews on Amazon and I made a complete cock up of it. But I think the, and I got probably deservedly badly punished and penalised for the rest of my academic career by academics. But, I mean, it, it, if I look back on it, uh, yeah, it came out of a sense of insecurity. Um, that, yeah, I was effectively, in in terms of the books that I didn't like, because I wrote lots of reviews of books I did like, but no one paid any attention to those. But the books that I didn't like and wrote reviews on pseudonymously, which, you know, it's not illegal, but, I mean, OK, I shouldn't have done it. Um were people who, who you know, made me feel particularly insecure. So, yeah, yeah, so I've learned a lot from that. I mean, I think I recognise now that I, I suffered badly from depression for a long time. Um, so I, you know, I had, I had, uh, I worked on myself. I, I've, I've had some medical help and I've taken medication since. And I, th- I think I'm in a much better place as a result. And I think that, um, you know, I don't, um, I don't feel the um, insecurity anymore vis-a-vis academics, and certainly not since retiring. I don't feel that. I feel I can stand on my own feet and tell them to fuck off if I want. Oh, there you are! I swore. In as much as you can um, sort of deduce a, a motive or a reason for for the writing of those reviews, what do you think it was beyond a sense of perhaps justice? I don't know. <laughs> It was just depression. It was just depression. And I didn't think anyone was going to read these things. I mean, they, you know, they're, pretty, they're in a pretty obscure place. And I wasn't as wise to the uh, pitfalls of the internet as we all are now, because that was 12 years ago that happened. And the internet was quite new then. And so, um, yeah, it was just depression. And if I felt really down, um, uh, yeah. But I mean, it was what I, the whole thing I got into trouble for. Probably the whole thing didn't take more than five minutes. So it's not as if this was like a habit, like I was sort of you know in some corner doing some dirty habit for years and years. I mean, the whole thing took five minutes. So, but it, but it I, I undoubtedly was um, a reflection of of depression and insecurity. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm well over that now and, and flourishing. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the historian Orlando Figes. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from another historian, Antonia Fraser, and she's going to tell us about a time in her career she failed. I failed in my writing career when I was commissioned to do a life of Queen Elizabeth I. This was after Mary, Queen of Scots. I was paid a lot of money for those times and I wanted to do it. And I did a lot of work, you know, and I started to write and I just thought, no, it's not special. I'm not really, you know, I'm not in love. I'm, I'm not giving something special to the subject. Um, I failed and 
it, I mean, the best thing to say is I'd failed. And then I had to pay back the money. Woohoo. <laughs> that was Antonia Fraser. And if you were interested in what Antonia had to say, you can listen to our full episode with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Orlando Figes. Could we ask another kind of nuts and bolts question about methods and things like that? Because our our listeners are always fascinated by this stuff. And one thing that a number of historians we've had on have said about how they they maintain kind of a, a timeline or, you know, I think William Dalrymple said that he keeps a three card indexes, so he does it in a very analog, old-fashioned way, but on paper. But one, um, I think I may be getting this wrong, but one is a timeline, one is character, and one is theme. And his his way is sort of doing that. Anthony Beaver had another way. Like, like, what is your method? And we we love to get really granular in this. Okay, method for method for organizing materials. Yeah, because I mean. Well, firstly, um, yeah, I mean, that depends on the book I'm working on. So when I, pre-computer days, when I did A People's Tragedy, I, I, I did a little five by, I worked on five by threes, little notepads, five by threes, and I would have a code system um, to highlight the source and the page number. And then I would put the title of the subject, which would be quite specific, at the top of the five by three, and then I'd make the note, and then I would shuffle all my shuffle all my cards and <laughs> put them into divisions and and start to work from there. And I guess that system of organising my notes has, has has basically it basically remained the same. I mean, I now do it on files on on computer um, and keep those files so that when I'm writing. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep the I'll keep all my notes on 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 effectively five by threes, but effect, but now files on on computers with the same coded system for the sources and page number, um, and then I will uh, cut and paste from all my notes into a into a working plan, which is a bit like a sort of uh, shooting script for film, I guess, um, which you know for a chapter, which is going to be maybe. 20 pages it's maybe two or three hundred pages of notes and I will so I've got everything there with all the sources so that I can write relatively quickly without having to waste time going back to to sources but uh, over and above that maybe this is what your question was about I've always kept a diary of my research so um so yeah, um, if I'm working on a subject, especially if I'm in the early period of working on a subject when I, I want to think through things and um, develop hypotheses or just lines of inquiry that I, 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 I want to follow through with at a later point, or if I'm dealing with character or something or some conundrum, which you know I don't feel... I I understand yet fully. Um, I will I will yeah. I keep a diary, literally chronological diary, which um, now again is is on the computer. It's just a file, and uh, when I have an idea, I write it down. And and that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed most about retiring, actually, because um, the. I mean, something my mother said to me many years ago, she said of herself, I write in the morning and then, in, and then the rest of the day I've got for thinking. 
and, and that thinking time is really important, um, whether you're writing or not. I mean, I, I will do some work, whether it's writing or reading, and then, and then I live in Italy now, mostly. I'll go for a nice walk. And, you know, and I'll, I'll come back, I'll sort of take the rest of the day off, probably, doing pleasurable things, but I will be thinking. I will be thinking about what I've read that morning. So, and, and then I might open my laptop and, and put some ideas down in my diary. So that's how it works, yeah, that's how it works for me. It, when you're in academia, you don't have that sort of time because once you've finished your own work, if I was at Birkbeck where teaching be, began at 6 p.m., you know, I, I would, if I had prepared my teaching, yeah, I would work until four, but then I'd have to reacquaint myself with the teaching stuff, work out how I'm going to teach class and go into class, right? So you don't really ever have time for that sort of um, open-ended time of thinking, which is so valuable. Of course, it depends on the book, but I wondered how long, A, you spent on each, in, on average, how long you would spend on a book and how that time would be divided between research and planning and then the actual writing. Oh, wow. Hard to, I mean, hard to answer that sort of question. I mean, each book takes a different amount of time, I guess. And um, mm, so if I think of the Europeans, which was my last sort of properly, you know, archivally researched book. I mean, I worked for a long time and it made probably because I just enjoyed working on it so much. I, I tried to string it out for as long as possible. But um, I was working on that for several years before the um, shape of the book came into being. I mean, the, the, the Russians had this term, the zamwiesel, the, the concept, if you like. And I think that's the first thing that has to come to you for a book. You can't, if you, if you go into the stage of actually planning and writing a book before you got the zamwiesel, it, it, it's not going to be a good book. It's not going to work. You have to have this original sense of, well, what is, what is this book saying? What is the concept behind this book? And what, that will then determine the shape. Um, so, so you want to get to that point. And then, of course, once you got to that point, then there's a lot more work to do in terms of the research because the Zamisel will give you all sorts of other questions you need to think about. So it's hard to answer your question there. I mean, there's no format, really. There's no... I don't write books... Um, you know, I, don't, I couldn't say that, you know, it takes me two years to write a book. I couldn't say it takes me five years to write a book. All I could say is, well, how... I mean, my first book was published in 1989, so that's 43 years ago. So I've written 10 books in 43 years. So maybe that... Th thir 33, I think. 33, not 43. 1889. Oh, yes, thank you. 33. So that's... 10 books in 33 years. So that, that probably answers your question. It very much does. Um, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. And so, you know, be as candid or as guarded as you want, but, but how has this worked for you? And, you know, how have you been able to buy your house in Italy and your flat in the Barbican and stuff like that? And then, and then the other point that we were um, amused by when we were uh, doing our research this interview was this play you've written about Flaubert's money troubles. So I wonder perhaps you could talk about money from your perspective and then 
maybe also, you know, because I know having read and really enjoyed the Europeans, there's such a theme in that book about the development of copyright and, and artists making a living and, and stuff. So, so the whole, yeah, the whole finance piece. Well, okay, so the play, the play was literally just a hobby because I was looking forward to retirement and thinking, well, maybe I'd like to write historically in a different mode and why not? Um, I don't have to write books that qualify on the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, which academics live by, I can do whatever I like. And I was very interested in um, flow. I mean, I just fell in love with Flaubert, I think, when I was working on the Europeans and thought that the I could do a book about his friendship with Tegania. But then I, uh, the more I thought about it, I yeah, I discovered this... Um, the play is about uh, Flaubert's fa- final years and the crisis he undergoes financial crisis mainly as a result of his beloved niece's husband's debts and he feels guilty for that because he sort of married her off to this boring businessman a bit like Bovary and he but he also has a sort of artistic crisis because he's working on a novel he knows it's no good but he can't do anything else and he won't write more popular stuff Uh, so his friends in this play being Georges Sand, Emile Zola and Turgenev uh, persuade him to uh, try and take on a sinecure, which is what the play was originally called, but I'm not allowed to call it sinecure, apparently, because no-one will understand what a sinecure is, I'm told. So it's called the oyster problem instead. And so, yeah, it was purely a hobby, really, and I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I think I might do more plays if this one is even remotely successful. But um, the the money theme in that is is sort of coincidental. Although you're right, uh, the money is is the thing that really interests me in the European. So maybe subconsciously I was drawn to that subject because it was um, you know money played such a big part of it. In terms of my own life, um, I mean I was always lucky in having an academic job. So that paid the mortgage. And I have a wife who, who also works. So we got by and the academic uh, salary was, 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 was never great, but I mean, it's, it was enough. And um, then my books, you know, they've earned, they've earned a considerable amount of money, I guess, over the years. I mean, I've got 25 years of, how many did we say it was? 20, 20 something, a lot of years of backlist. Backlist do, you know, my, you know, I'm in a lot of languages, so my backlist do regularly clock up nice amounts of money. And so, yeah, that, that enabled me to retire and indulge myself by writing a play, I guess. I'm a very lucky person. But I don't have... Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I am a lucky person, and I have, you know, I, I have three houses for what, for a ridiculous situation, but, um, but there you go. And, you know, otherwise I don't really have expensive habits. So I'm, on, I'm, I'm in bliss when I'm just on my own working in a library. So that's, um, you know, I don't, I don't gallivant around the world in, in private jets and things. So, and I don't particularly like expensive restaurants either. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, money's not important to me, but I've got enough. Thank you very much. You alluded to this earlier in the interview, but I wanted to ask what the impact of your work had been on your mental health. You've spoken in the past about The Whisperers in particular um, taking its toll. Um, Why is it that that book moved you or working on that book moved you in a particular way? Well, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with as much primary material about the horrors of the Stalin era as as I was, that 
that it that will take its toll. Undoubtedly, that will take its toll. And the sense of responsibility in in telling those stories to the best of my abilities. I mean, I I, I realize for one or two people, I didn't get it quite right, but um, to 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 do it to the best of your abilities quickly because it had to be done quickly is quite a burden which creates quite a lot of stress, I guess. Uh, I think my mental health issues, as we can call them that, are are more to do with my position in academia um, or lack of any position in academia, which bothered me for a long time. It doesn't bother me anymore, but it did. Then, then with the work, I mean, I've always found great solace in my work. I've always, you know, enjoyed my work. Um, there's a lot of joy to be had in 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 writing and in discovering new archival documents. After all, I mean, that's a very joyous thing. So I don't think the um, depression comes from the work. I think probably... I mean, writing, full stop, but academic work in particular probably is quite isolating. Um, uh, for that reason, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody lightheartedly. You know, I think it's... Academic life is fairly miserable in many ways, particularly now with the profession so diminished as it is and and it's basically a market system to get bums on seats and pass them... Uh, uh, whatever they write now, it seems, they've got to be passed because it's all about collecting fees. So all of that shit just doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't interest me anymore, I guess. But the process of, of researching is quite... It's quite isolating. I was wonder. I was wondering again. Sorry, sorry, to interrupt. But I mean, I, I hugely enjoyed the Europeans, and and I found I think what was very profound about it was its study of character, right, and particularly between Turgenev and and Viado and and this idea of motivation and and you know what was you know, driving and, and getting at these people. And I suppose wonder to maybe turn you know that historical you know that extraordinary analysis you've brought on these these people who lived another century, bringing them back to yourself. I mean, do you feel in the dozen years or so since you had this this kind of difficult experience with Amazon have you you know and the work that you've done on yourself since then I, I I just wonder do you think has it been has sort of envy has that been the, the thing that you've been wrestling with do you think over that time and if so how have you got beyond it and I, I'm really interested that you feel that your the thing that you felt insecure about was your position within an academic pantheon not you know, you you that was where you wanted to be. You because we've had these other historians on the show who have no, you know, a, a Beaver or a Hastings or someone like that who who sell in vast quantities but have no academic post. But for you, was that the thing that was gnawing at you that you weren't a professor at Harvard or something like that or what? You know, if you're willing to go into this area, it just seems you know you've been very reflective about it so far. So, uh, so what was your original question though? Or what what has been the the thing that you've on on this journey that you've been on has it do you feel that you've been able to kind of deal with that point about being envious or insecure or no no and I think as a young man I dealt with it very badly I mean when you when you have a book like a people's tragedy at the age of 36 that's really a curse in academia in British academia that's really a curse people hated me and uh were, were envious of me but um the way they dealt with that or with me was just to put me down the whole time so I was, you know, wasn't promoted ever. I, I, you know, didn't ever get elected to the British Academy. I didn't ever get, you know, I didn't 
get half the number of uh, research awards. I got, you know, none for many, 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 many years. Um, so it was just this sense of, yeah, I probably wanted some recognition from from the academy that my work was was rigorous, as they say, that the, it was it was based on scholarship and it wasn't just pot boiling for a bestseller list, which is how they presented it. So yeah, that but that doesn't bother me anymore. That doesn't bother me anymore. Um, but I think. Um, I'm not sure what your original question or observation was about, but I guess... I, I think what I was interested in was that you were bothered by not being justified by academia, but you but you had you didn't feel that you could be a popular historian. That was never a way that you wanted to go. I saw myself as a scholarly historian who just happened to be able to write well and communicate scholarly work to a mass audience, which is, you would have thought, a talent that academia would celebrate because let's face it nine out of ten academics can't write at all but they all want to be able to write which is where the envy comes in and now they have all sorts of um, stress institutionally on the need to be able to communicate history well Um, so and that's benefited from you know publishers like Simon Winder at Penguin who have who have created this large list now of historians who are basically academics but can can bridge to a, a, a more general audience. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I saw it that way and I guess I don't see history as having to be academic in its mode of, of writing. I don't see that. I think character, understanding character, the use of the imagination, the, the storytelling, the creation the, of atmosphere, the understanding of time and place, all of them eff- effectively you could write off as novelistic skills. They're all absolutely crucial to the telling of history. You know, absolutely crucial. So what's the problem if you're a writer who can do that and write that way historically? I don't see that that's a problem. I would have thought that's a plus. We're coming towards the end of our time. So I wanted to end with a sort of jolly brief question. You mentioned um, that you're hoping to write more plays. What might the subject of your next play be? Oh, no idea. No idea. I mean, like books, plays take... um, an idea for a play. I mean, I was working on this play that's being produced at the German Street Theatre next February. I've been working on that in my head since I was working on Europeans, so 2018-19. I have some ideas, but, you know, they're little seeds in my head at the moment, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, basically. But but, um, But I will... You know, I will open a diary on some of these ideas and think them through. I don't know if I could do plays that are too close to my specialism, if you like, Russian history. I'm not sure I could do that. But I need to think about that. Brilliant. Well, look, Orlando, thank you for a fascinating and a, and a wide-ranging interview and also for your, your candour that we really appreciate and um, wishing you all the best both with the history and hopefully with your blossoming career on the stage. Lovely. Thank you very much. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Orlando Fijis. He's on Twitter at Orlando Fijis. His website is orlandofijis.com and his latest book, The Story of Russia, is published by Bloomsbury. 
Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway with the interview with Orlando? I thought Orlando spoke with particular candour about um, his work, its reception, um, the struggles he's had balancing his work with his mental health. Um, and I thought it was a wide ranging, um, timely and enlightening discussion. How about you? I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, I was thinking we've had a kind of amazing canon of uh, historians on the show now, and it was excellent to add him to it. I also thought it was part of a another continuing theme that we have on the podcast, which is about this relationship between writing with a capital W and academia. And that's come up in, in other contexts with uh, literary critics we've had on, like Robert Douglas Fairhurst and Merva Emery. But this was a little bit different as someone who wrote, writes, I suppose, quite consciously literary history, how he was perceived in academia and some of those conflicts and, and tensions that he, he, I thought, spoke about very interestingly. So, yeah, I thought, and I thought, you know, he was thoughtful, as you said, about some of the, the personal challenges that he'd been through. Mm. What have you been up to, Simon, in the past couple of weeks? Well, excitingly, I have recently had a sort of meta podcast experience because I appeared on an episode of Travels Through Time, which is a podcast that is hosted by Artemis Irvin, who is our producer here on Always Take Notes. And Artemis interviewed me for that about my book, The Changing of the Guard, which I, I really enjoyed. It was good to be on the other side of the microphone. And I recommend that. Otherwise, um, I'm here in, in Switzerland for my new book project. So in this tiny high altitude village called Chandelier, having um, all the, the kind of uh, ingrained defaults taken out of my skiing technique for this book, which is uh, delightful and, and a huge adventure, but also, also quite hard work physically. So it's been it's been going well. Um, Rachel, what about you? Yeah, it sounds tiring and thrilling that we're setting up a podcast multiverse um, <laughs> <laughs> through our extended <laughs> network. Well, I realise I have not mentioned Plot Twist, which is the new culture newsletter at The Economist. We launched that just before Christmas oh. and it offers insight into our reporting and some recommendations and kind of just generally shows off what we're doing over at The Economist. So any subscribers can sign up for that and I'll get it on a Saturday. So yeah, let me know what you think if you do get it and tell me what you've been uh, reading and listening to or watching and enjoying. Um, yeah. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor, and in this case also interviewer of one of the hosts, is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. We're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there and Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.